So, Bob, as you know, we usually come on the air here and answer emails. Let's do the same today. What do you say, Bob? <laughs> it's very consistent. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am a therapist in practice here in Seattle, and you and me are old friends from school. So this first email is about teletherapy, and this mm. is a question from deserving listener Zach from Discord. They write, I'm writing a research paper, and I'm finding out that, by and large, most people prefer online therapy sessions over in-person therapy sessions. Many people are saying that they want the online sessions to continue after lockdown. I wonder why this might be and what your experiences are. Bob, what do you think? Before COVID, I didn't think teletherapy was going to be worth a damn. But what I'm discovering is that it actually works pretty well. I think it works as well as in-person counseling. And when COVID ends, I'm going to go back to my office and see people face-to-face. And I bet that there's a significant number of them that will continue to see me online, either for, you know, practical reasons like transportation and they can't make it happen, you know, they can't leave work or something, Um, or maybe because they have this kind of preference, though I didn't know that people had actually had that preference. Yeah, my attitude is the same as yours, that I am not a fan of particularly Zoom therapy. There's something about Zoom and video conferencing that just really doesn't do it for me. Um, I've been doing phone therapy for decades. I mean, did you do occasional phone sessions? Oh, yeah. 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 Um, And do you do phone or video with your clients? Video almost exclusively, though if somebody wanted a phone, I wouldn't grumble about it. And and video's okay with you? Yeah. I don't like video for some reason. Really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I find it to be uh, aggravating, I think, because of the lack of ability to have eye contact and mm-hmm. the fact that I have to sit and stare in, into a computer screen or something there's something that i just don't like and mm-hmm. I, i've been doing phone sessions occasionally as you have every you know a client is out of town for some reason and and so i'm really used to that and so i when the lockdown happened i just did all phone oh i didn't I, know that because i just knew that i just wouldn't like zoom and mm-hmm. so i have been doing that and i find that a lot of stuff can happen over phone i, I i've had clients who in the past, who um, had a significant portion of their sessions over phone, I would find that I would get different sort of material from them in, over the phone than in uh-huh. person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're more vulnerable or more v- vulnerable in a different area. Mm-hmm. It can be more contemplative at times. But of course, it's harder to really communicate. It's harder to convey empathy. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's pros and cons for sure. But anyway... I figured the same as you is that when the lockdown is over, everyone's going to return to in person and maybe a couple people will be like, Hey, you know, for convenience, maybe we would do phone sessions every now and then. And I'd probably be okay with that. Mm -hmm. But this notion that Zach brings up that by and large, most people prefer online therapy sessions is news to me. And, and I thought that can't be right. And I actually looked up the research Mm -hmm. and it's complicated. So it depends on where, in what society and also what type of therapy it is. So in societies where what I'm going to call high stigma societies, then there's a pretty good chunk of people who would prefer online. Uh, But it's not a hundred percent or it's not even nine. It's not even most. It's like maybe 30% or something. And maybe after the pandemic, it'll get up to 50%. And it also depends on what type of therapy, right? Like with psychiatry, I found a a um, study that found that a lot of psychiatric patients would prefer on online me- uh, meetings. Uh, well, I'm guessing that's because in psychiatry, it it's sometimes the case where there's not a lot of psychotherapy happening and there's a lot of just medication consultation. And so you don't need to be in person necessarily for that sort of thing. Um, Of course, there are many psychiatrists who do a lot of really important psychotherapy work. But anyway, because what I'm thinking is, is that with your and my style of attachment-based, personality-based, security-based therapy, um, relationship-based therapy between client and therapist, that it's not likely that clients would 
be dying to do online sessions all the time, right? Don't you think that? I'm kind of curious to find out. Like, I could see where somebody who might engage, you know, a therapist who's relationally oriented might also find themselves reluctant um, or uh, coming up with, you know, rationales for not showing up in person. And then I think it's just something that gets to be talked about. Yeah. Well, what about you as a client? Do you want to return to in-person once the lockdown is over? Yeah, I will. I like I like not having to commute down to my therapist's office. It's, you know, um, I have to get up earlier, yada, yada, yada. It's an inconvenience, but it isn't a deal breaker. And when the lockdown, yeah, I'll just go back to seeing him in person. Yeah. Unless something's up. Yeah. But it is an interesting question overall that mm-hmm. Zach's essentially alerting me to. Because I... Before getting this email and before doing a, a short review of the literature, I just figured, I guess because I'm old, that everyone's just going to return to the way it was, where it was almost never teletherapy, mm-hmm. and many therapists don't even offer it, and many clients don't even think that it's a possibility. Yeah. I and, used to discourage it. Yeah. After the pandemic, we might be looking at a situation where like, a good portion of therapy is done uh, online or yeah. over the phone. The other thing, actually, along these lines, is Antioch will be switching to a lot of online teaching after the pandemic is over, which was surprising to me. Wow. And I don't know how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. You know, prior to the pandemic, uh, well, so five years ago and and before then, uh, there was no online teaching at all, like zero. And there were questions from some students of like, hey, you know, it's kind of hard for me to commute. Is there any online options? But it wasn't a lot of students. And there was also pressure to compete with other universities that offer more options like that for people that couldn't otherwise. You know, some people literally choose programs based on the fact that they're online. Mm -hmm. And so we would make those uh, little adjustments, you know, maybe one or two classes would be hybrid online and in person, but it was really infrequent and it, it never really got off the ground. Of course, pandemic happens now. Everything is, is online. Like this quarter, I, I have students that are, don't even live in the United States (laughs) Uh, currently. Yeah. Because you don't need to, you can, you can live in the Caribbean and, take this class right what are they going to do oh well they're going to stay online no once the pandemic is over they're going to come to seattle and actually do in person okay but there's talk about how like 50 percent of our classes and even 50 percent of a class will be done online and i was like oh bummer (laughs) like (laughs) uh hopefully there'll be some flexibility professor to professor and i'll just choose nope not for me. Yeah. I do not like teaching over Zoom. It mm-hmm. is uh it is substandard in a variety of ways and I don't none of the students that I've talked to have said that it's a, it's better or even the same. So, uh you know, psycho now maybe some classes that are more kind of lecture based or something could absolutely be online and that'd be fine, but for the classes that I like to teach these are in these are human things that require human interaction and yeah. i think we can all agree that inter, interacting over zoom is not the same as interacting in person i think i think all of us can understand that the other thing is is just while i'm on this topic is when i teach classes in person there's a natural flow of people asking questions and interacting with each other and maybe even interrupting me or they give a face and I kind of turn to them and like, what's up with that? It's a very fluid back and forth exchange mm-hmm. over Zoom. Uh, and I've been talking with my students about this. Everyone just kind of approaches Zoom as if they're in a bo- boring work meeting. Oh. And, and none of them, and you know, because there's that thing where you mute yeah. your microphone, right? When, when it's not your turn. So even if you do have a quick reaction, you have, people have to go, oh, they have to get their mouse out and they have to go to the thing and they have to unmute it and then they have to react. And it really grinds the interactivity to a halt where mm-hmm. I, I, I'm i basically just yammering the whole time and no one's like chiming in, you know? And I have to I have to create this sort of pushy culture where I'm like, does anyone have any questions? Is, mm-hmm. you know? 
Whereas in person, it would just be happening, boom, boom, boom. It would yeah. just it'd just be all spontaneous back and forth. And yeah, uh, yeah. so I, I can't wait to uh, have this be over and to actually be in person teaching. And I hope that my university um, allows that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I'm a bit of a prima donna anyway at my university, and so I'm guessing that if I complain loud enough, they'll let me do what I want. <laughs> 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 <clears throat> Um, I say I'm a prima donna because there was this huge turnover of all the staff and professors. When I was hired, all the professors were older than me. At the age of 40, I was like one of the youngest, if if not by far the youngest. All the other professors are in their 60s and 70s. And then over the past five or 10 years, all the baby boomers retired and we hired all younger people in their 20s and 30s so i'm this old relic who has been around for 25 years people just don't i'm kind of a crotchety old like in jaws the uh, the this the guy who the old grizzly guy who yeah. he has his way he's setting his way <laughs> and i and i like that i like that <laughs> Um, all right. Patron Kristen from California says, thank you for doing what you do. Oh, by the way, this is a beautiful email. So mm. patron Kristen, thank you for doing what you do. I'm an essential worker, as mm. is my husband and daughter. We have been scared, exhausted, divided amongst our coworkers, friends, and our families. Many relationships have been lost. My dear mother-in-law lost her life to complications from COVID on Christmas Eve. My husband lost his mother. She died alone, only seeing her husband on FaceTime. All this to say, thank you. I struggle already with severe anxiety and depression. I've been with my therapist for 20 years plus and can't tolerate anything these days that doesn't serve my well-being. You two are a great comfort to me. Your empathy, your perspectives, your steadfastness, they are soothing and kind. It brings me to tears, and I'm just so grateful. Please know you are doing wonderful things. You matter to me very much. Stay safe. The world needs to know. The, the world needs you now more than ever. Bob, what do you think? That's lovely. Thank you. Yeah, it's really lovely. And also very sorry about your losses. Yeah. Yeah. There's just been so many who have died from this. Mm. And you hear the updates, and it's a slow build. It, sometimes it seems like well this is our life now but just to just to put it in perspective i looked up some stats we're edging up to half a million deaths how many deaths bob do you think happened for the united states in world war ii i want to say a hundred thousand but i actually don't know it's about four hundred eighteen thousand. Oh, okay so we have more deaths from covid yeah in less than a year mm-hmm. than we did in the entirety of, the, of World War II, in the Pacific, in Germany, in France, in Italy, in... Over four years. Yeah, over a number of years. Yeah. And, and World War II, you know, we all know Arlington National Cemetery. We all know D-Day and all the deaths that happened. We have more deaths from COVID mm-hmm. in less than a year. There were... 58,000 deaths United States in the Vietnam War. Of course, there were millions of Vietnamese who died. Mm-hmm. But 58, so the Vietnam War, the biggest uh, dirt stain on our national pride. People were in the streets protesting about this. You know, we all, under, we all know that history. 58,000 deaths in, the, in Vietnam. World War I, 63,000. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all seen... World War One movies with you know, just all, of course, America, far fewer Americans died than other countries. But mm. how many people died in 9-11? I think it was 3,000 in the towers. But yeah. I don't. Yeah. yeah. It was about, well, it was about 2,500 in the towers and about three to 500 in the planes or something. Mm-hmm. So total 3,000 people. Think about the cultural and historical significance and the pain that we went through from 9-11. 3,000 dead. Now, it's a tragedy, and it's awful, and it's, you know, burnt into my brain, and and I think for good reason, but 428,000 deaths so far, and we're we're probably going to 
surpass half a million deaths. Soon. 3,000 deaths. Think about what 9-11 meant to us. Think about what 9-11 did to us. Think about what 9-11, how it changed our society and our culture and our understanding, particularly for some people. Mm -hmm. And then times that by 200 in terms of the amount of deaths and that many of those deaths were preventable. You could say, well, you know, it was inevitable. No, you look from country to country, different reactions, different governmental procedures and attention, different death rates per capita. The only thing in American history that had more deaths was the Civil War, and that had 655,000 deaths. Again, think about what that means to us. And so we're living through history, which is interesting on one level, but on the other level, it's just like all the grief and all the fear. I mean, all of us are suffering in really significant ways. I remember when the lockdown first happened, and it's like we're at like week two of the lockdown, week three or something. I remember thinking... Oh my God, this is, this is just the worst. Soon this will be over, of course, you know, we'll figure this out. And now this, that's just our lives. To get back to Patron Kristen, yeah, you've been working, you and your husband, your daughter, and exposing yourself and you're terrified and then mm -hmm. your mother-in-law dies on Christmas Eve mm. Alone. and, and just... All the listeners out there who are scared, who are dealing with loss of various kinds, we're all in this together. And we're all going to have to help each other. Hmm. And the pain is real. Hmm. And the fear is real. Hmm. And there's no tip that we can provide to take it away. It it. It's rational to be hurt. It's rational to be scared. It's rational to be upset. And um, we acknowledge that. And we're feeling it. I mean, do you feel it? Yeah. How so? Well, even just hearing this thing, I'm just imagining what it's like to go out to be an essential worker. That means you have a job that you... You must, wherever you're going, you're exposing yourself to risk on a, on, and it becomes like a, re, it's a regular daily thing. And I'm just imagining, I'm, we've got somebody in one of my, in my DBT class who's also an essential worker who's describing the terror that she feels regularly when she has to go to her job. You know, it's like everybody she works with, they're all in the same boat, everybody's scared. And it's like, on the one hand, it sucks to be scared, but on the other hand, it's it's right to be scared because it's actually really dangerous. Like the risk is there and not being scared would be in a way silly, but months and months and months of having to live with fear. I, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose what we can do is to feel it and to acknowledge it and to be with each other. And, um, do what we can to put an end to this and read another email that has to do with this. Anonymous patron says, Hey, Dr. Kirk and Bob, I wonder if constantly worrying during a pandemic could contribute to an increased desire to engage in risky behavior. Sometimes I find myself so exhausted by having to avoid socializing that all I want to do is throw caution to the wind, go out and see someone. I'm so tired of living in fear. I know it's not natural to be isolated for so long any insight you or Bob have would be much appreciated. Bob, what do you think? Yeah, I think a lot of us feel this way. It's like we get a case of the efforts, you know, like just maybe it's not real. Well, I am not sick and that person that I want to hang out with is not sick, so it's probably okay, right? I've had that thought. Um, totally understandable. One of the things that we know is that, um, you know, living with um, stress can increase people's impulsive behavior their temptation to do impulsive things um why do you think because they wish to escape um feeling like crap right yeah and and understandably so i i guess i'm thinking um i get that it's exhausting and 
it is mm, impactful to live with fear day after day after day. I'd like you to live with wisdom, though. You know, it makes sense that you would be cautious and protective, and it is a drag. There's just no getting out of that. It's also temporary, like all things. It's temporary. I don't know when the end's going to be, but there's um, it's gonna it's gonna change, and we're better off if we wait it out. The other thing that occurred to me as we were reading the last email is remember back in the beginning when people used to say, say things like flatten the curve. I haven't heard anybody say that in months, but it's still essential to do it, like yeah. to do the things that we can to flatten it. So I know that. Um, most, if not all of us, are suffering in some way or other, and it makes sense to keep living in wisdom. Yeah. So the only thing I'll add to that is that sometimes when we're so scared and it's ongoing and it's crushing, we will look for some way to alleviate that or at least to mm-hmm. just change it somehow. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we resort to change to try to improve things is by uh, having a case of the efforts, which is mm-hmm. to actually gain power. You know, there we're faced with the lesser of two evils. I can sit here powerless and afraid, or I can sit over here and be powerful and at risk. And sometimes it's preferable to be at in power while even being at risk mm-hmm. than to be powerless and afraid. Mm-hmm. There's also more predictability to taking action and putting yourself at, at in, and it also is a distraction. And I think sometimes it could also be a self-punishment. Some people might actually have a schema of self-punishment. And I think also for some people, it's, they're trying to habituate. They're just trying to, it's like if you're afraid of heights and you go bungee jumping or something, it's like, maybe if I do this, I won't be as afraid anymore. And, you know, I get it, but it's almost over people. Uh, we're almost all vaccinated. We're almost about to all be vaccinated. So let's all just uh, let's all just hold on one one last little leg, and then we can all you know we we can say that we succeeded in preventing the deaths that would have happened if we didn't do anything. Uh, anonymous patron, he writes in. I'm about to apply to a, to an MFT program. And I feel like people like me don't go to these types of professions. I have always been a stereotypical masculine man. I played sports year-round. I work out. I love drinking. I do lots of stereotypical man hobbies. When people talk about toxic masculinity, they are talking about me 10 years ago. I still feel masculine, but I got rid of the toxic part. I feel weird about being a therapist, though. On the podcast, you talk about how you were a jock and pretty masculine growing up. I'm a black man in an industry dominated by white women, which adds to my feeling of not belonging. Did you feel weird or a sense that you didn't belong when you became a therapist? Bob, what do you think? Uh, No, but, well, first off, I'm a white guy, so that's probably going to change the dynamic quite a bit. Um, I felt weird when I was young because I thought I wanted to be a child person, and I did. I worked with children for a couple of years after college, and I thought, oh, God, that must be weird. Like, everybody look at me like I'm some kind of weirdo or some kind of subversive threat somehow. And um, um, it, I guess being in a community of people that accept me helped shift that, and then I also discovered that I don't want to work with children. So, um, no, I can't say that I did, and my guess is that if you – a uh, person writing in pursue education. First off, I hope you do. I think you should. Uh, that's what you're called to do. That's great. And um, there's something lovely about being masculine. And you get to model masculinity to people. You get to probably show a softer side of you, of you that is not unmasculine, but it is a softer side of you. And what a great model for the world to have. So I, I really hope you do. And I suspect that, yeah, um, yes, white women, right? Got it. I was at a training uh, last week, an online training, and there were 35 participants. Two of them were men. Oh, no, excuse me. The, one of the teachers was a man. One of the organizers was a man. And then there was me. And the other 30-some people were women. And I was the only straight person there. Um, uh, well, the teacher was straight, but um, 
see what's my point my point is yeah you get used to it you'll get used to it um and it may at times be you know like make you feel uncomfortable or self-conscious but that's not a reason not to do it my kid imagine this imagine not doing it and living your life thinking i wish i had that would be a tragedy so when you entered graduate school you had already worked somewhat in the mental health field yeah so maybe that helped it does yeah uh for me i hadn't and so it definitely anonymous patron did feel similar uh, Mm -hmm. to what you're describing and i did when i entered the field when i entered graduate school i definitely did feel like a fish out of water for a variety of reasons one because of masculinity on some level. Is toxic masculinity like when you get mansplainy? Well, so mas- the, the I, I don't so toxic masculinity, the word toxic I think is appropriate, but I think it's a little misleading because I think a lot of people think that it means that masculinity is toxic and oh. in the literature and among the experts it is that we socialize our people around gender and masculinity and femininity. If you were born with particular anatomy, then you get socialized in a particular way and you have these values injected into your head about in order to be a a good man, you have to have these traits and do these behaviors. And some of those traits and behaviors are what we'd call toxic or harmful or bad. And some of them are are fine. Uh, The notion of being helpful, men are usually socialized to be helpful, like in terms of physical helpfulness, right? Like help, helping to carry groceries from the car or fixing a doorknob or something. Men are socialized in that way. And, and that's, that's good. That's a good side or at least neutral. And then bad side of masculinity are things like you need to always make sure that you deny being gay because to be gay is to be, a, to be, or to be a woman, you, you know, you have to, de- you have to deny any association with being seen as feminine because that is the worst possible insult you could possibly give a man. And, mm-hmm. and, a, and any man who is seen as at least partially woman <clears throat> or partially gay is essentially not living up to their masculine ideal. Mm-hmm. And we have other ideas like you have to overpower women, both mm-hmm. physically, mentally, and sexually, in order to be a man. You can't be sub, you can't be submissive, and you can't even approach sort of a neutral power position. You have to be in constant control. And of course, this is toxic because it causes so much suffering and pain and victimization. The, these ideas that are injected into our heads as, as mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. and so. That's what it means, toxic. And so mansplaining, I suppose, is part of that, right? Because mm. you're having to constantly assert that you know things, because that's another masculine thing, is, is knowing things, and also mm. being conversationally dominant, right? Why did you ask about mansplaining? It's a term I learned about a year ago, and um, I didn't know what toxic masculinity means, but I know mansplaining is patronizing and offensive. Yeah. And it's a thing, man. I mean, have you ever, have you noticed that? Oh my God, I do it sometimes. And Colleen will just like, that's kind of mansplainy, which I usually respond to. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Jeez, what's up, man? Yeah. yeah. Cause I'm not generally very, I'm not aggressive. I don't tend to try to dominate for the most part. Um, um, well, not based on being a man. I don't try to dominate. I mean, everybody tries to dominate sometimes. So, um, all right, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. and uh, We have a, a couple emails about Borderline that I want to get to here. Mm-hmm. Patron Joe from England writes, I'm wondering if there's a term to describe the following psychological profile. Extreme sensitivity to abandonment, but responds with deactivating strategies rather than hyperactivating strategies. They fit the preoccupied and pursuer labels in relationships, but they internalize their abandonment fears because they worry that externalizing will cause abandonment. They partake in idealization and devaluation and might be extremely jealous, but will never vocalize their jealousy. Is this covert borderline personality disorder or just an anomaly? I often see this profile in very socially anxious people who depend on a single relationship to meet their attachment needs. Bob, what do you think? This is covert borderline. I don't know. I, I guess I like the phenomenologically empathic 
description of the things that you notice because they're non-judgmental. The things that you said, I, I at least read them as non-judgmental. They're um, ways of describing what might happen for a person, um, presumably a person or persons that you know, and you look at them with a compassionate eye. So I don't know if it's covert board. I guess you could say that, and I wouldn't lose sleep over it. I don't know that it really, it's not very important to me to give it a label. I just like that you have a compassionate understanding. Right. Right. Because let's say we did call it covert borderline. Well, what does that sure. mean? Yeah. It, it just means we have a label for what you described. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's a blood test and this person <laughs> has, you know, the biological markers of a condition. It just means you're describing someone's reactivity and their traumas and mm-hmm. their their coping style or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I, get, I get this question in a variety of ways. So I've answered this question before, but uh, let me answer it again from this angle, which is that, um, you know, the borderline personality disorder label is used to describe a wide variety of people. Any personality disorder will. Uh, and so online, what you'll find, or maybe even among clinicians, you'll find that borderline personality disorder, at least commonly will be referred to people with borderline personality disorder, but they're also abusive and externalizing. We'll often hear about these cases. They're the people who sue you. They're the people who yell at you. They, they might even be violent with you. And these are the cases that are often discussed online. You know, that the association with borderline and abuse is very uh, significant, similar to narcissism and, and, and sort of outward hurtful behavior. But the, the thing here is that people with borderline personality disorder, at least according to me and, and many other experts in this sort of arena of borderline conceptualization, is that they have abandonment traumas. And they're triggered easily by signs of abandonment, either big or small, real or imagined. And some will externalize their extreme fear and trauma triggering as anger, control, demands, violence, and some internalize. They have all the internal reactivity, but they don't show it. They beat themselves up. They have all the idealization and devaluation, as you're calling it, and are preoccupied. And so what online a lot of people will call this is they'll call them quiet borderlines. We've talked about this before, Bob. And... I find that label to be fine, but it implies that if you don't have the word covert or quiet before borderline, then it's assumed that if someone, if we're using the term borderline, we're we're describing someone that's demanding and violent and controlling, which is just not how I see it anyway. And so to me, rather than having all these subcategories of borderline, let's just destigmatize the word borderline and just understand that it's a broad category of a lot of people and you really just have no idea i'm i've had people with borderline personality disorder who no one would ever suspect at least i conceptualized them that way and they agreed with me and they were pleasant and nice and their kids loved them and their you know there there wasn't any relational signs of the borderline. The borderline is an internal process. We can often see behaviors that are associated with it. And of course, the DSM is completely behaviorally oriented, but we have to understand that at least the original intent of the borderline label is to describe how someone works on the inside. And then that inner working will result, will result in common behaviors, but not universal so let's just understand that people with borderline vary greatly. You can have one person at one of this of the borderline kind of violent spectrum who literally kills people. There are people with borderline who, due to their perceptual problems and their reactivity and their traumas, will will literally murder because they're so angry at someone for hurting them emotionally. And then you have people at the other end, like I was saying, uh, that you would never notice anything. You'd just think they were pleasant and happy and nice, but on the inside, they are suffering greatly. And 
in my book, I might call both of those people borderline personality. And, and we just have to understand that there's, there's a wide variety of people. But anyway, uh, that's what I'll say about that. Another question here, Patreon Lily from France says, I was wondering if it was common to have borderline personality disorder and bipolar. My best friend's boyfriend has been diagnosed for years with bipolar 1 and is following treatment for five years. However, seeing their relationship, I can't help but to identify lots of behavior characterizing borderline personality disorder. Bob, what do you think? I think this happens a lot where people with borderline personality disorder get diagnosed with bipolar disorder either before they get a borderline diagnosis or during having that they can have them both at the same time. And I think that there, and you and I have talked about this oh, years ago, we talked about how if you see bipolar disorder, you really see something that the, it's hard to miss, but, yeah. but you don't see it much. And so what people think of as mania, they don't really get it. I remember sitting with somebody who had, who had bipolar disorder and um, she, she was in the throes of mania and she was so agitated. She couldn't sit still. She kept getting up, checking outside, then come and sit down, then get up and then go check on her husband and come and sit down. She couldn't finish the sentence. She, she, and she, she was miserable and understandably so because my goodness, what an awful thing. She couldn't sleep and she hadn't slept for days. Um, and and so what they say in the DSM, if I'm remembering correctly, is that a person might have these kinds of mood symptoms, but they rarely that they usually last for a few hours and more than rarely than or and rarely more than a few days. Mania is super intense and lasts a long time. So I, I'm whenever I hear this thing, I always get kind of dubious. I think bipolar disorder is like ADHD 20 years ago. It's overdiagnosed. I yeah. don't think people really get it for the most part. You don't see it much. So, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist in the instance that it exists in. I'm saying that what we call mania isn't often mania. Yeah, exactly. So, Patreon Lily, I don't know about him, obviously. Yeah. And the research does show that there's about a 10% comorbidity between borderline and bipolar, meaning that if someone has borderline or bipolar, about 10% of them have been labeled with one with the other. Now, whether or not that's accurate or not, um, it's hard to say. Yeah. Can someone have both borderline and bipolar? Absolutely. Sure. Uh, it absolutely happens. But yeah, bipolar and borderline are often confused in very confusing ways to me. I, I, I do not understand how you could possibly confuse these two conditions. They are so different. I, I get that if you have five minutes to assess someone in an ER, you know, emergency room, that, yeah, you might not be able to tell the difference. You know, if someone's in the throes of a, of a reactivity to abandonment and they have borderline, they could appear, I guess, but even then, like you're saying, mania is, is uh, on the psychosis spectrum, mm -hmm. right? And some people even are advocating uh, in the literature to put borderline and bipolar on the same spectrum. Can you believe that? Oh, no, that's a mistake. I know. It's just crazy. I mean, yeah. bipolar is uh, on the uh, schizophrenia mood disorder spectrum, if anything. Yeah. And it's such a different experience, and it presents so differently. Yeah. And I think what happens is that people associate bipolar because okay, first off borderline obviously is very complicated and most clinicians have limited understanding of it. I'm just going to say that, or at least half of clinicians have limited understanding. Bipolar is also extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. It is a very odd be, uh, set of behaviors and you have to be very experienced to know it. I have a lot more experience with borderline than bipolar, but enough to know th th the difference. Now, bipolar often gets associated with anger and big emotions. And so you'll have a kid, for example, that will just be completely flipping out with anger oh, for a right. long period of time. And they'll be like, oh, he has bipolar. Yeah, right. And it's like, well, maybe he has bipolar. But do you have the full symptoms here? Because you're just looking at someone. And I've seen it happen. I've seen clinicians just say, oh, it must be bipolar because the yeah. person is so angry and right. so emotionally dysregulated. I'm like, there's a lot more symptoms than just emotional dysregulation. Yeah. Now, the other thing is they'll see borderline as just reduced to cutting, 
or suicidality. I've heard oh, people say that. Right. Oh, that yeah. person cuts, they must be borderline. I'm right. like, what are you talking about? Mm. <laughs> like how how did how did that how did you graduate from, you know, your school and that's what you took away from it? Um, you know, so certainly people with borderline are more likely to cut and certainly if you're cutting, you're more likely to have bipolar than if you're not cutting. But you borderline, not bipolar. Oh, sorry, borderline. Yeah. But the and maybe that's another reason. This is like they they both start with B. They both start with B. I've had that thought many times. Yeah, <laughs> and it's BPD, bipolar disorder, right? No, BPD is borderline personality disorder, right? Yeah, yeah. So it they they're very different to me. Yeah, and I really can't see. I think it, it, especially in long term therapy or long term meaning, like oh. th- three or more sessions. <laughs> it becomes extremely obvious that it is yeah. one or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, I just to give you an idea of what manic depression, bipolar can look like, in addition to what Bob said, is you can have someone who will have six months of just severe depression, where it's just like they're down, they hate themselves, they're suicidal, they can't motivate themselves to do anything, nothing in their life is enjoyable. And then all of a sudden, you know what? They're starting to feel a little better. Maybe the medication is working or maybe therapy is working or maybe that new exercise routine was working and they feel better and they're like, okay, success. And then a little bit later, maybe it's maybe it's a week or a month and now they're feeling really good. And they're like, wow, I finally did it, you know, and I, I'm really doing great, you know, and I, I'm cleaning the house and I'm talking with my old friends and I'm... I'm working on that project. I'm getting stuff done, you know, and people at work like me and I'm socializing and I'm going out more. And then a week later, they're like what Bob was saying. They can't sleep. They're confused. They can't finish their sentences. They might even be psychotic and delusional. They are very much in distress. And then a week later, they feel depressed and then it's you know then it's nine months of deep depression Mm. that to me is very distinct (laughs) now of course we have like mixed cycles for some people which does confuse things but anyway um let's do a couple more emails here Uh, patron belina from gainesville says you've mentioned several times in the podcast that it can take a long time to develop a case formulation for many clients especially for those with personality disorders sometimes months or a year. What do you do for those clients while you're still figuring it out? I'm sure there's a lot that can be done to help them, but just curious how you gauge what they need. What do you think, Bob? I have no idea how to answer this question. Oh, well, so I think what they're asking, Belina, is that in order to treat someone effectively, you have to have a conceptualization of them, right? You have to kind of know what the issue is, right? You have to know what to target. You have to know what to help them with. And you have to know perhaps why they have the problem, right? They come to you with relational problems. You have to investigate and figure out. And if it takes me months to figure out if I can confidently label someone with a personality disorder, what do I do in the interim? Well, it's an emerging understanding is the thing. Like I'll have a hypothesis literally within five minutes that I'll follow. Uh, And maybe it's wrong, but... Uh, I, I always am having a, an hypothesis, mm-hmm. a good guess, at least at that point to go off of. Now, sometimes I'm like, I have no idea what is happening here. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, I actually refrain from treating them because, I mean, I, 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 I treat them, but I refrain from intervening until I have at least some good guess as to what's happening. So that's my answer to that. Uh, anonymous Patient says, Bob, I listened to your podcast about DBT mm-hmm. and how you would think the white Subaru is your wife's car. Oh, yeah. And you would fear she's cheating on you. Yeah, I related yeah. to this so much. I've been cheated on in the past, too. Mm-hmm. What are some thoughts you... What are some ways you soothe yourself after you have those thoughts? I often feel mad that he made me worry and at the same time feel like a crazy person for making these assumptions. I'm happy whatever I imagined isn't true, but, I'm all, but I also feel like my emotions have nowhere to go. Bob, what do you say? Um, well, let's see. There's a lot going on there. Um, I'm kind of thrown by this. I don't know what's going on with me. Thrown? Thrown Yeah, I'm not sure what to say. Um, 
Can like, we read the Can we read the question again? Because well, I'll just paraphrase it. All right. So anonymous patron says that right. You have this experience where you'll see your a car that's like your wife's right, car in right, public, right? Yep. And I'll, and it'll trigger this. Oh my gosh, she's cheating on me. Right. And then for this person, this happens to them too. And and in the moment, they feel like a crazy person in their words. And they also are kind of angry at their spouse for putting them in that position. You know, if their relationship were more secure, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be worrying about the fact that they're uh, cheating on me. Did and, they cheat? Or we don't uh, know. They have been cheated on in the past, but not by this current partner. Got it. Got it. But I get mad at, right, right. I get mad at my current partner. I sort of um, take my anger about what happened to me before in the other relationship and transfer it onto this relationship and get mad at the person for cheating on me, even though they didn't really. But Well, yeah. But also, I think uh, what they're saying is, I get, well, you know, I have to get mad that he made me worry. So, he you made know. made me worry. Yeah, he made me worry. I think what that means is, uh-huh. if you loved me more... I wouldn't be triggered by seeing that car. You know what I mean? If, if oh. you made me feel more secure. Um, but anyway, what they're asking is, mm-hmm. what are some ways you soothe yourself after you have those thoughts? Oh, um, you know, it's funny. I haven't had those kind of thoughts in a while. She changed cars, by the way. Now it's a red Mazda CX-5. And every now and again, I'll see one out there and I'll think, is that Colleen's car? But with COVID, she doesn't go anywhere. I drive her car more than she does, so... I'm not triggered like that these days. Um, How do I soothe myself? Well, here's what's available to me. I can always turn to Colleen, right, for soothing. Hey, that scared me. But I I think it's best if I don't turn to her with blame. Like, that doesn't work because, A, she didn't do anything. And, uh, well, that's the main reason not to. It also doesn't get me anywhere. Here's one for you. I I think this is like a little bit of you're asking apples and I'm going to answer oranges. So my apologies. But here's the following thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is those of us who there are many of us who would rather feel angry and righteous about what we don't have than feel vulnerable in asking for what we want. It's almost like we prefer to not, there's a part of us that prefers to not actually get what we need, which is soothing and comfort or whatever, but to presume that it's not there, not available to us when it could be. And what really is happening is it is frightening to turn to the other person and say, I got scared. I got triggered. I don't, I'm terrified that you're cheating on me. And all the knowledge in the universe doesn't help. It's like, yeah, I know you're not my ex. You're not that person and you're not doing it. But, but it's true. I do. I get scared and I get triggered. Right. And I, maybe I feel bad about it. Maybe I feel guilty about it. Um, Maybe I feel scared that A, it's going to happen or B, that you're going to not like me because I get triggered and you're going to be grumpy and, and, and rejecting of me because I'm not sane or rational. By the way, I'm not a big believer in rationality. I kind of noticed that humans often are not rational, but I don't think that means bad. And I prefer the word non-rational to the word irrational because I think it's kind of loaded. Anyways, I bet it's scary. Just listen to what you're saying and riffing on it. I bet it's scary to think about turning vulnerably to your partner and sharing your terror. But yeah. I think that's probably a good idea. So listen, I apologize if that's not really what you wanted to hear or if I was off base. Right back and 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 kick it around some more and, and I'll try to do better. No, I think that's an excellent answer because it really gets to the core of the trauma and the corrective experience and the fear. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Which is, I see a car. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Is that my... Or, you know, a flash thought is, hey, is that my partner? Wait, I did not expect to see my partner in that part of town. Is my partner cheating on me? Is my mm-hmm. partner going to have abandon me? Mm-hmm. And I feel terrible right now. Oh, my God. Where is he? Mm-hmm. What's he doing? Is he cheating on me? You know, there was that one time where I saw him texting someone and he didn't show me, you know, oh, my God. Uh, and there was that one time when he said that I was too much for him and that I'm that I'm really, like, needy. And, and all this stuff comes flooding back. And to go to the person and say, hey... This isn't your fault, but I'm feeling really insecure right now. Can you reassure me that you love me and you're not cheating on me? Because mm-hmm. I really need to know that you're not cheating mm-hmm. on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you didn't do anything, honey, by the way, but I just really need to know. And by the way, if you ever hear that from the other side, rise to the occasion, people. Yeah. That vulnerability, it you know, any kind of bother about it is completely dwarfed by the benefit of this opportunity to mm-hmm. really help someone feel secure. If you're like, oh, why do I always have to deal with this? Well, it's probably because when you do get bids like this, you don't rise to the occasion enough. If you really pour it on thick, okay. I mean, if you think about it in terms of like an investment, I'm going to invest five minutes of a lot of energy in this moment right now, mm-hmm. and that's going to save me probably like literally 50 hours of conflict in the future. <laughs> because <laughs> if you can really make your, your spouse feel secure mm-hmm. and cared about and safe and loved then that person is a lot less likely to cause issues in the future, Mm -hmm. a lot less likely to be triggered in the future. So, Mm -hmm. so it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you have a hard time engineering that on honest patron, then, you know, go to couples therapy with someone who gets it. Mm. All right, Bob. Well, we got to about half of the questions. I think, I think we did pretty good today. That's pretty good. Yeah. And what's the final word on today's episode, Bob? Do you know there's a lot of pain in today's episode? The lady who had all the terrible losses with COVID and then this person who's written in most recently. Pardon me. Um, I noticed that I feel um, a little bit overwhelmed and kind of sad. Yeah. I feel better, though, than I did at the beginning. Oh, right on. Because it's better to be real and and to be with each other. Do you feel bad? No, I'm not going to lose sleep. And um, uh, yeah, is it a maybe. lot to take on? Yeah, actually. I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm glad glad people are writing in and talking about their lives and asking questions and sharing their pain. It's just wow, man. Yeah, it's it's a lot. So. Yeah, and everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.